The prayers recorded inside of Scripture have a lot of things in common. But one of the things that they all share in common that can be easy to miss but is incredibly obvious is that all the times of prayer in Scripture have a beginning and they have an end. Whether it's Hannah praying for a child, whether it's Daniel going three times a day to his window to pray in the face of opposition and persecution, whether it's Jonah in the belly of a fish, or whether it's Christ in anguish in the garden before his crucifixion. There was a time when that prayer started, and there was a time when that prayer ended, and the people had to get up and continue going about their lives and what God was leading them to do. Even the prayer that Jesus gives us is a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer has a beginning and then it has an end. And as soon as Jesus ends that prayer, he encourages and commands the people now to go out and to do what they prayed for, to forgive those who have trespassed against them just because, just like God has forgiven them. All through Scripture, we see a series of interactions, personal, intimate, deep interactions with a God who loves his people, and then subsequent actions that are inspired by, empowered by, and motivated by those interactions. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, we see the same thing take place. Last week, we looked at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul had a prayer for the church. And Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus that they would be empowered by God and given the knowledge and the love they needed to go out and to do the work that they were called to do. Before that, in Ephesians 2, in the first part of Ephesians 3, we saw Paul lay the theological foundation for the church. That God has taken people from all different places and through the power of Christ and his death and resurrection saved them by grace and brought them together mysteriously to be one people, to be one body with one purpose. And so Paul knelt before God, prayed for his church, and then he said amen, and it was time for action. Today starts the move from looking at a church forming to a church moving, to seeing a church in action, answering the call that God has given the church, and trusting in the strength that God has given us. And so today, and then over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking through chapter 4 as Paul explains the ministry and the work that we're supposed to accomplish as the church and how we're supposed to do that as one body with one faith under one Lord, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at the first steps of that calling. As Paul tells the church at Ephesus, and then through God's word tells us as well, to begin walking in the calling that God has given us. And so let's look this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And this is God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as always, we do thank you for your word. And especially as we've been talking about the church, God, we thank you for the church. And what the church is, what the church means, how the church came into being. But also, God, that you have given us a calling. 
that you not only prepared us, that you not only equip us, that you not only save us, but you do all of these things so that we can go out and to do the work that you've given us to do and fulfill the great commission that Christ left for us to fulfill. And so as we look at Paul's encouragement for the church to start walking, God, I pray that that encouragement would land right in our hearts and that we would see all that you've done for us, all the potential that you've put inside of us, all the giftedness that you've given us and the beauty of the church that you've established and that through that and through your power, we'd be able to go out and to do what you've called us to do, not simply here at Redeeming Grace Community Church, but throughout our community and throughout the world. So Father, teach us to be people of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And teach us to do all of those things and be all of those things as one body with one heart and one mind fixed firmly on our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in His precious name. Amen. My wife and I are TV people. If you gave us the option to watch a good movie or a good TV show, we're going to choose a good TV show nine times out of ten. And we watch a lot of different kinds of TV, a lot of different kinds of shows. Some TV makes you laugh. Some TV makes you think. Some TV gets you all up inside your feelings. And some TV can make you anxious. For me, sports has a tendency to make me really anxious because I'm a control freak. And so the fact that I'm watching something and I have a vested interest in the outcome, but I can't do anything to change the outcome makes me very tense. But the most tense that I've ever been watching TV, the most anxious that I've ever been through a TV programming wasn't sports related, but it was a special, and I believe it was on the Discovery Channel, about a man who was going to walk on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. And they were broadcasting this live, which is already stressful enough because I don't watch TV so that I can watch somebody die. That's not on my list of things that I want to see take place. And so there was a real possibility we were going to watch this dude fall off a rope into the Grand Canyon and it was going to happen in front of our eyes. So I went into the program very stressed out. But the whole thing was shown from a combination of his point of view, a helicopter flying above him, and then cameras on both sides, and it felt like it took a small eternity. I think it only took a matter of minutes. It felt like six years passed, and my heart was beating, and my palms were sweating, and I was really tense through the entire program. But before he walked, they spent a lot of time talking about who he was, and then also showing his preparation. And so he was a guy, he married into the family of the Flying Walindas, and they have a, a long legacy of being acrobats and circus performers and tightrope walkers. He was basically the best in the world. He is, he lived. <laughs> that, that story ended well. He's still with us, as far as I know. And so he is still probably the best tightrope walker in the world, and he had already taken on some pretty big things, and they went through his history, but they were also showing his training. And they would show him strengthening himself. And then practicing walking tightropes. And sometimes you saw him fall in practice and that made things even more tense because you're like, you just fell in a foam pit and I don't think they have one at the bottom of the Grand Canyon so this probably isn't going to go as well for you if you fall. So please don't fall. But he was training over and over and over again. But not only was he training physically, not only was he training with, with the skill set that he had, but he's also preparing mentally and emotionally, even spiritually. But also he would go to the Grand Canyon 
And they would look at what line they need to draw, where the tightrope needs to go and where it needs to end and what was the best place for where the wind was going to blow and the best place for how he could get across. And they would be thinking through all of these things and all of these angles. And the preparation was intense, as we would expect it to be. And so finally it came time for him to start walking and it wrapped up all the the presentation of how he trained and he stood in front of the tightrope. And he was the most prepared man in the world to walk across a tightrope to go across the Grand Canyon. But none of that meant anything until he decided to take the first step. See, if you're the man who knows how to cross the Grand Canyon and you're prepared to cross the Grand Canyon on a tightrope, but you never do, it ultimately means nothing. Potential is a very strange thing. Because potential is very important. Potential is a very beautiful thing. When somebody has the potential to accomplish something, we see in that the design of God and the giftedness of God. Also, years and years sometimes of work and preparation, mental, spiritual, physical, the whole deal poured all into this. And so potential is a very beautiful thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. Because potential, if it's never put into motion, really doesn't mean anything at all. As I've already mentioned, Paul explained in Ephesians 2 and 3 how God saved people into the church. How God, through Christ, saved the Christian people by faith, by grace, out of His power as a gift that came completely from Him and gave the church everything that they need to accomplish what He's calling them to do. We've seen Paul hit his knees in prayer and ask that God would make the people of God complete. And when he prayed for the church in Ephesus, the final thing that he prayed is that they would be filled with the fullness of God so that they would be complete in their knowledge and in their love and in their strength and in their wisdom so they would have everything that they need to accomplish that purpose. The potential was there for the church at Ephesus. The potential is there for the church around the world. The potential is there for Redeeming Grace Community Church. It's just important that we know that we need to start walking. I love that Paul begins this this thought process here after his prayer, saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul is pleading for the church not to simply be comfortable with their potential, not to simply know all the true things about what God has done for them and just to sit back and think about how good it is and never do anything with it, but Paul is pleading with them to start walking in the walk that Christ has given them. He says you have absolutely everything you need. You have everything you could ever desire and more. We serve a God who has more than we could ever need or ever obtain. And so he's given you all you need to do the work that you're called to do as the church. And so with all of that in mind, I am begging you to start doing something about it. You need to go. You need to start moving. But Paul doesn't simply urge them to walk. But he urges them to walk in a very specific way. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. N.T. Wright, one of the foremost New Testament theologians in the world, has a translation of the New Testament he calls the Kingdom New Testament. And his translation of this passage says that you must live up to the calling that you received. Again, I watch a lot of sports. I watch a lot of sports 
TV. I watch a lot of sports programming where they analyze and break down sports. I listen to sports podcasts. I listen to sports radio shows. I really like consuming sports-related things. And there's a lot of criticisms and critiques that come about different athletes and who they are and what they do and what they can accomplish. But it seems like the worst thing that you can be called in the sports world is a bust. A bust is somebody who on paper looks like they have everything they need to be great. They've got all the tools. They've got all the skills. They're physically gifted. They're ready to go. Maybe they even have a really great resume up until that point. But then for some reason, they don't live up to the hype. It happens all the time around draft time. Whether it's the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, there's all these scouts and all they do is watch high school and college athletes and they want to see how good they do and they give them grades and they rank them and then they decide who they should pick for their team based on all of this potential. But then sometimes the athlete doesn't live up to the hype. The church is called to walk up, walk in a way that lives up to the calling that we've been given through Christ, to take the potential that God has given us and to use it well, to look at the way that God has saved us and how God has saved us and to use our lives and to use our activity as the church and to use our ministries as the church to reflect the character of God, to reflect his nature, and also to reflect all of the characteristics that he used to save us. We have to live up to the calling that Jesus gave us. Now, this means a lot of things, but it also means that we have to stop doing something as well. Because when we start walking towards Christ, that means we have to stop walking in a way that we used to walk. In Ephesians 2, Paul says at the very beginning there, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul talking to the same church that he's now encouraging to walk as one in harmony and unity to reflect the gospel in a manner worthy of their calling just a couple chapters ago said, listen, before Christ, before the gospel, before we were saved by the grace of God, every single one of us were walking in a direction that was completely in the opposition to the way that God had designed us to walk. All of us were pursuing our own desires. All of us were pursuing the things that glorified ourselves and not the things that glorified God. And so we were walking in a direction that we shouldn't walk. And now I am urging you and pleading with you because Jesus has made it possible for you. Now walk in another direction. And that means that we have to walk away from the things that don't glorify God. We have to walk away from the things that don't reflect the goodness of God. The kindness of God, the loving mercy of God, the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God. John said it this way in 1 John 1, 5-7. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul and John both 
encourage us to walk away from the things that keep us from honoring and glorifying God because those things lead to disaster, those things lead to danger, those things lead to death. And so they encourage us instead to walk in a way that honors and glorifies Christ because that's where we find life. That's where we find hope. That's where we find peace. And John even says that's where we find fellowship with one another. That when we're walking together in the same direction towards Christ, we find that sense of community and fellowship that the church is supposed to be founded on. This means that we walk away from what doesn't glorify God and we walk in the things that do. We walk in kindness. We walk in grace and mercy. We walk in righteousness and holiness. We walk in the light as Christ is in the light. And now this may seem really obvious. It may seem like a very normal thing to think about, that if we've been saved by grace, if we call ourselves Christians, then we should live like Christians and we should walk as Christ walked. But if it seems so obvious, then why would Paul feel the need to urge the church at Ephesus? Why would Paul feel the need to urge us to walk in that way and to walk in that manner? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One reason why Paul has to urge us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ is that it isn't easy. We want it to be easy, but it isn't easy. Most of us, if we're honest, if given two roads, we'll take the one that's easier. That's why sometimes we'll drive around a shopping lot several times. We'll go around the parking lot at Walmart six or seven times so we can find the closest spot possible instead of parking maybe ten spots back because it seems so far away. When we mountain bike, when my brother and I mountain bike, or if we go hiking or anything like that, if there are two trails, if the trail splits and one looks like it goes uphill and one looks like it goes downhill, chances are I'm choosing the one that goes downhill, which is kind of tricky because in most of these trails, they have this thing where they like to go up and down. And so a lot of times if you go down, the way up is far more difficult. But all I see in front of me is a downward trail. And so I'm very willing to take that. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. We want to find the road that gets us to somewhere easiest. And it's a lot easier to walk in darkness than it is in the light. Because in the light, we see everything as it really is. And Jesus told us that that the path that leads to life is narrow. The path that leads to life is difficult. We even see in Christ's own life that the path that we're called to take leads sometimes to persecution, sometimes to opposition, sometimes to very difficult circumstances. And so it's a lot easier to walk away than to walk towards Christ. And so that's one reason Paul has to urge us. But also, one of the things that can happen in our lives is that we can become complacent. When we talk about bust, one of the things that you hear about athletes who don't live up to the hype is that they have all the tools they need, they have all the giftedness, they have all the strength, and so they stopped working hard because they became complacent and rested on the gifts that they naturally have instead of continuing to refine them and keep them progressing over and over and over again. And that can happen in Christianity. Paul dealt with that in the book of Romans when he's talking about being saved by grace. He says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more because it's not about what we do, but about what God has done for us. And so we're saved with this beautiful picture where God gives us everything that we need. And so we can start to look around and say, well, I have grace. God has equipped me and given me everything I need. My eternity is checked and secure. And so why would I need to do anything else? And so we can become complacent because we know that Christ has done the hard part for us. And so we can just sit back and relax and rest. Sometimes we have a lack of trust. 
Sometimes we don't believe that God is big enough. We believe that God gifts us. We believe that God gives us strength to do some things. But sometimes we feel like God is calling us to do things, whether it's individually or as a church, that maybe God isn't big enough to do. Maybe God has bit off more than he can chew, and he just doesn't really realize it yet. And so if I step out and I try to trust God and I go out on this proverbial tightrope, maybe he hasn't put it down like it's supposed to be, or maybe the rope isn't strong enough and I'm just going to fall through because God doesn't have the power. And maybe we don't like to say that out loud, but it's true. It's something that happens in, I would say, all of our lives at some point in time that there is a lack of trust in God because we don't know God the way that we should, and that keeps us from doing what we're called to do. Sometimes we have a fear of failing. Maybe we believe that God is big enough and strong enough, but we're also very aware of the fact that we aren't. We say, yeah, God has gifted me. God has given me the strength. God has has done all this incredible stuff for me. But what if I'm still not enough? What if I try to do this and I do something wrong? What if I try to do this and I slip and I fall? What if I embarrass God or what if I let God down? And so I would rather not move. I'd rather not try so that God can keep looking good and so that I don't mess things up. And so in a weird way, even though we don't think we have a lot of power, when we think that way, we're assigning us far more power than we actually have because we don't realize there's nothing that we could do to change or mess up God's plans. Sometimes we feel inadequate. Maybe not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of other people. We can look around and we can say, they know who I am. They know who I've done. And maybe, maybe I know that Jesus has saved me. And maybe I know that the old is past and the new has come and that, that God loves me for who I am. But how could I expect the people who know me the best to really understand that? They know all of my weaknesses and they see me when I fall. And so there's no way that I could be the one that God is going to do, use to do all of these things. Maybe the most common reason that we don't do this and certainly the most profound is sin. Sometimes the consequences of our sin actually slow us down from being able to do what we're called to do. Sometimes our sin, when we walk away from what Christ is calling us to do, keeps us from being able to do what we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do it. Sometimes when we sin, the guilt starts to settle in. That guilt that Jesus died to take away from us, that guilt starts to become very real in our lives, and that guilt can turn into shame. And when shame is fully born in our lives, it's very hard to want to work for God. It's very hard to want to even be in the presence of God because we're so consumed by how bad and how awful we are that we can forget about the grace and the mercy of God. And so sin comes into our lives and it can keep us and derail us from doing what we're supposed to do because we forget that Christ has saved us once and for all. To answer Paul's calling, we need to address each of these factors that hold us back by trusting in the gospel. Because for each and every one of those things that I mentioned, the gospel is the answer. When we remember that the work that Christ has called us to do isn't easy, we are reminded that Christ did something incredibly difficult for us so that we can have the ability to do difficult things and endure hard times. When we become complacent, We remember that Jesus is never complacent for us, that his love and his mercy for us never subsides or never lessens, that he is always passionately in love with his people and his gospel is always good and always true for each and every one of us each and every day. And so the gospel combats our complacency. 
When we have a lack of trust, we're reminded through the gospel that we have a God who so loved the world that even though he was big enough to hold in the palm of his hand, he stepped foot into our world, into his creation, and became one of us for us to accomplish something we couldn't do on our own. And we're reminded that God is big enough to do anything he sees fit to do, even through us. When we have a fear of failing, And when sin can consume us, we're reminded that not only is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, but that salvation that Jesus begins in our life is a once and for all thing. That the old is past and the new has come and that Jesus, through his cross, when we trust in him for salvation, has forgiven us of our sins yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we fall short, when we mess up, God is still good and God is still glorified and he picks us up and he cleans us off and he sets us back on the road to walk. And when we feel inadequate and ashamed of who we have been, the gospel reminds us of who we are in Christ. And that no matter how anyone else perceives us or sees us, we remember that God sees us through the eyes of the cross, not as sinners, but as saints, as his children, as his sons and his daughters. And so we take the gospel to each of these factors And by trusting in the gospel, that enables us to step out on faith and walk and live in a manner worthy of our calling because the gospel reminds us that he has made us worthy to do that. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul now moves to describing how this walking should be done. And it's important to notice here that not only in chapter 2, but here in chapter 4, when Paul says you, he's not describing a group of individuals, but he's communicating to the church at Ephesus and now to Christians all over the world as we read this passage of Scripture that you is referencing all of us. It's a corporate term that reminds us of the truth that we're going to talk about next week, that we are one. And this commandment is for all of us to walk, but not as individuals walking all different ways, but to walk as one body in unity and in harmony with one another. And the way that Paul calls us to walk not only reaffirms that, but it also teaches us how to walk as one. Right off the bat, he says that we should walk with all humility. And in the ESV study Bible, it points out how humility was perceived during Paul's time. And it says, humility was regarded as distasteful by the pagan world of Paul's day. Pride was more highly prized. And in this very first thing that Paul tells the church to do, in this very first way Paul tells the church to walk, this step is a very countercultural step. In a world during Paul's day and during our day that's completely self-focused, that's all about advancing me and myself and my agenda and all the things that I need, Paul says that you are to walk with humility, not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That you think about other people, that you think about the things that are important to them. Humility, in a nutshell, is looking to the interests of others and to love other people as you love yourself. It's a Christ-like mindset to lay down our own pride and desires for the good of others. 
And Paul in Philippians tells us that that mind belongs to us when we trust in Christ. That we have that same mind that Jesus has that allowed him to condescend from heaven, to, to look at all that he had and see that we were worthy enough for him to step out of his rightful place as God Almighty and to become one of us for us, becoming nothing, taking the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the kind of humility that Paul tells us to walk in. Ambition is all about building myself up. But humility, especially in the context of the church, looks to build up the body. But Paul doesn't just say to walk with humility, but he says to walk with all humility. That humility and humbleness should be the consuming mindset that each one of us have. And it's an amazing thing when we all start walking that way because there can be a fear That if I'm going to put myself out there, and if I'm going to be humble, and if I'm going to look to someone else's interests, then I'm going to suffer for that. But if each one of us, individually and as a church, make the decision, the conscious decision, that we are going to walk with all humility, as I walk looking to your interests, you'll walk looking to mine, and we will function as one body, working for the good of the whole body while caring for each of the individual parts. And so we walk with humility. He says to also walk with gentleness. And gentleness is a pretty amazing word. And when we were looking through the fruits of the Spirit, I think I spent two weeks just breaking down the word gentleness or the word meekness. And the easy definition for gentleness is that gentleness is humility put into action. And one of the things that I think is easy to forget is that the way that we speak to one another, the way that we speak about one another, and the way that we deal with one another matters. Again, if we're not coming from a humble perspective, we can think that our words don't have any impact and that the way that we deal with one another really doesn't matter. And that if somebody gets offended or somebody gets hurt, that's just on them and it's not on me and they just need to get over it and they need to toughen up like I can toughen up. But the reality is the church is called to be a place of gentleness where we speak to one another and with one another with kindness and humility that we treat one another as Christ has treated us. This characteristic makes the church a haven for the broken and the weak. Sometimes the understanding of the church from the outside looking in is that the church is a place where people come because they all like Jesus and that they're all really good people. And sometimes there's hypocrisy in that. Sometimes there's piety in that. But no matter what the case is, sometimes people can feel like they don't belong. But when we treat each other gently, when gentleness is the way that the church walks, we find ourselves becoming a safe place for people to come who are broken and weak. And just in case you're not aware of this, all of us at some point in time find ourselves in a place of brokenness and weakness. And so while we're called to treat others gently, we also come to the church knowing that it's a place where we should also be treated gently as well. I love how John Peter Lang describes this, this terminology in his commentary. He says, the mildness which is gentle towards others, it's that way because it thinks, have I been helped? Then I do not know who should not be helped. And to change that language and make it a little more modern, basically what Lang is saying there is that we look around and we realize that God has been so gentle with me, and if God is gentle with me, there is no one who is not worthy of being dealt gently with. 
And if the way that we walk is going to reflect the way that Christ has saved us, then gentleness has to be a part of that. Because when we are broken, when we are weak, we we are in the midst of times of difficulty and turmoil, we have a God who deals very gently with us and compassionately and kindly. And a God who is willing to put humility into action through the death of Christ on the cross. And so if God has dealt gently with me, then how could I not deal gently with others? And how could the church, a place founded on God's gentleness and grace and mercy, how could we not be an institution in a body who deals gently with anyone who comes into our community? He also says to walk in patience. Now, it can be hard to be patient with people. For some of us, it can be very hard to be patient with people. For at least one of us, it can be very hard to be patient with people because I am not a particularly patient person. I'm not very patient with myself, and so I'm certainly not very patient with other people. And it can even be hard to be patient with people. It can especially be hard to be patient with people when we are trying to practice humility and gentleness. Because when we do put ourselves out there like that, when we humble ourselves, when we try to walk in a way that honors and glorifies Christ, when we treat people gently and then they turn around and treat us harshly, it can be very difficult to be patient with that because we think, how can you do this to me? How can you treat me this way? How can you respond to me this way? I am incredibly humble and very gentle. And so it can be really difficult to be patient with other people. But here's the God that we serve. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah 4, 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 8-9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God is patient with me, if God is patient with us, if the God who created the heavens and the earth is patient with the people who brought sin into it and continue the pattern of sin each and every day, if God is patient with the people that he had to send his only son to die for, if God is patient with us each and every day when we fall short and we act like we don't know what we're supposed to do and we turn our backs on him over and over again, if that God is patient with this people, then how can we not be patient with one another? We have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And God was patient with us when he called us. And to be worthy of that calling, we have to be patient with one another as well. And that can be hard, especially in the life of the church. 
because you've heard the phrase that you can't choose your family. And that is very true in the life of a church. You can choose your church. You can choose which one you go to. There are a lot of churches in Loganville. So you can pick one that might seem like the best fit for you. But the reality is, if there is more than one person in that church, there is a possibility for conflict and there's an opportunity for patience. Because the church is this unique place where God has brought together all different kinds of people at all different situations at all different places in their lives. Some who seem to have it all together, some who seem to have nothing together, and everybody in between. And we all require different levels of patience, and sometimes we need more patience than others. Sometimes the same person who might be easy to deal with all of a sudden can become someone through their circumstances and difficulties that they need your patience. And it can be very hard to do that, but it's the calling that we have. And again, if we are able to build a foundation of patience, not just here at Redeeming Grace, but at every church, at the church or the capital C all over the world, if people recognize that a church is a place where people are not only humble and not only deal gently with one another, but that are also patient with one another, we are putting on display the beauty of God and the power of the gospel. Then he says that they should be bearing with one another in love. And this is how all of those things are possible. We saw that Paul prayed that the church would be grounded and rooted in love, that it would be the the support system and the lifeblood of everything that the church does. And so to be patient, to be gentle, to be all of these things that we're supposed to be, it has to be founded and based in love. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he said that love is the law of Christ's kingdom, the lesson of his school and the mark of his family. That love is the starting point and the finishing point and the driving point of everything we do as a church. And the only way to walk with all humility and patience and gentleness is through love and bearing one another's burdens in a Christ-like love without limitation or condition. And then Paul moves on in verse 3 to say that you should also be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's something very primal about being a baby. Very primal about being a baby. Lucy, our youngest daughter, is very passionate about food. Deeply passionate about food. And when she was younger than she is now, especially when food would enter the room, she would have a physiological reaction to food. And it was about as primal as a reaction to food can get. She would smile and her eyes would widen, but also her entire tiny body would just tremble when the food walked into the room because she was so excited and so passionate about food that not only would it affect her face, but her whole body would have a reaction to the joy that she was feeling. That's how I understand eagerness here in this passage. That Paul wants the people of the church to have a deep, almost primal response to this incredibly beautiful thing that God has established. That Paul wants the Christians at Ephesus and all over the world and throughout history to fall in love with the Christ-like community and unity of the church and to be passionately eager to keep it intact. N.T. Wright, again in his translation, says that you should make every effort to guard the unity that the Spirit gives with your lives bound together by peace. The church should be a place of peace. Very often it's not, but we can be. 
But for that to happen, not only in a local church, in a local congregation, but for Christians all over the world, for that to happen, unity and peace has to be a desire. It has to be a mindset, and it has to be an eager pursuit. For the church to be able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, there has to be a clear understanding of how important unity and harmony is, and there must be a culture of peace so that the church can maintain it. And we do that to come full circle by walking in humility, by walking in gentleness, by walking in patience and bearing with one another in love. But each of those things has to be a mindset, and it also has to be an action. And it has to be a clear focus for our church and for every church all over the world and for the church as a whole to say we are going to be a people of peace and we are going to be a people of unity. Even in the midst of all our diversity and all of our differences, we know that at the core of it we are united by Christ and that's all we need. And Christ is the Prince of Peace. And so as his body, we are going to be a body of peace. God has given his church. He's given our church everything we need to answer the calling he's given us. It's our job to walk. And so for us, as Redeeming Grace Community Church, we should be a place, and we have been a place our entire existence, and so we need to keep walking in this direction, be a place marked by the gospel. We need to be a place filled with people walking as one in holiness and grace and kindness, with all humility, dealing with one another gently and with patience, and in all love, bearing with one another while eagerly working to sustain and maintain the unity that God has given us through Christ. And so as a church, let's continue to walk in the ways that Jesus has given us and deepen our culture of unity and peace as we work to take the gospel to the world.